This episode contains potentially disturbing content and includes graphic references to topics such as sexual assault and violence. Listeners, please be advised. tried to get the suspect to take the tape off of her mouth by telling him she couldn't breathe. A.E. held her breath at one point and the defendant stopped the car, poked her in the eyes and slapped her until she acted like she was breathing again. Welcome to Truth in the Shadow. My name is Peggy Simmons. And what you've just heard was my friend Dee Woods reading the arrest warrant for that 2003 rape in McCleary we mentioned last week. We'll be hearing a lot more about that in the episode. Welcome to episode two of our series investigating the murder of 10-year-old Lindsay Baum. If you haven't heard our first episode, we would strongly suggest you go back and start from the beginning. There's a lot of information in that episode that feeds into the rest of the series. Up until now, I've been telling you the story of what happened. But moving forward, we're switching into a more investigative and active gear. That means you're going to hear a lot more interviews from the people involved. Also, Tracy will be joining me in the studio to discuss what we've managed to find out and what it means for the case. So, hello, Tracy. Hi, Peggy. Happy to be back. Before we start today, we want to address a mistake we made in the previous episode. We said that Officer Graham was in his home in Elma when Melissa Baum called the McCleary Police Department. In fact, he was at his home on Elma Hickland Road. Yeah, Peggy and I have spent a lot of time getting lost on Elma Hickland Road, so it's kind of understandable that maybe it took Officer Graham a half an hour to get to Melissa's that night. Yeah, the last time we were on Elma Hickland Road, (laughs) 
We were lost. We were actually sleuthing a suspect in that 2003 rape we mentioned last week. And we'll be talking about that suspect later in the episode. But right now, we have an interview I did with the main suspect early on in the case. We referred to him as the frequent flyer in last week's episode. But with his permission, we can now tell you that his name is Dale. Dale is actually one of the reasons why I got interested in this case in the first place. I was reading about it um, at the beginning of the year on Web Sleuths, one of my favorite places, and he came up and the, the people there had sleuthed him pretty well and he looked pretty suspicious. Sorry, Dale. I don't know how he first came to law enforcement's attention, but there are a lot of circumstantial things tying him to the case. For one thing, he worked at the Beehive Retirement Center, which was on Lindsay's route, as we discussed last week. And for another, a co-worker at the Beehive says that he heard Dale's very noisy car on Maple Street at the time Lindsay would have been walking down it. Yeah, his white Del Sol. So, once again, keep in mind that Lindsay said a white car was following her before she went missing. And another thing that didn't look too good for Dale is that he was texting furiously with this woman that he was uh, romancing at the time all day, and then at 9.30, he stopped all texting texting whatsoever. And then he started up again at around 6 a.m. in the morning. So the feeling was that, you know, 9.30 is when around the time that Lindsay went missing, and between 9.30 and 6 a.m., there surely is a lot of time to commit a crime and cover it up. And it also doesn't look good for him that when he was asked about his whereabouts on the night Lindsay went missing, he claimed to be working, and that was later proved to be untrue. And there's also the fact that he went to Ellensburg a couple of weeks after Lindsay went missing, and of course, Lindsay's remains were found in Ellensburg, so I think the feeling was, you know, did he transport the remains there at that time? And additionally, separate from that, is that It connects him both to where Lindsay's remains were found around Ellensburg and McCleary, which where both of them were from. Yeah, and then there's the whole business of him following Melissa around. Yeah, that whole story is weird as fuck. (laughs) Right? Anyway, I reached out to Dale a while ago, and we've been talking ever since. Uh, We're really grateful to Dale for sharing his experience as well as addressing some of the evidence against him. And here's that interview now. So, Dale, tell us, what is the town of McCleary like? Well, usually the people in town either either work for the mill or you grow up and you move out of here, you know? Uh, I grew up here my whole life. Yeah, your family is from McCleary, right? Or do you live in the town of McCleary? Yeah, I live on the outskirts of McCleary. I, I live like two miles out of town. Would you say that McCleary is one of those towns where you kind of know everybody? Yes. And what is your profession? I am a professional marijuana grower. So, Dale, if you want to go ahead and just take us through that day of June 26, 2009, and tell us your story. So, the day that she disappeared, I was I was down at my neighbor's house, and uh, we rotor-tilled his entire garden. I spent all day down there. Between that and... Um, you know, we smoked pot. I mean, what, what, what do we expect? Hippie. You know, got done with that, and then I walked home. And we sat on the couch, and that was the last thing I remember. <clears throat> my aunt, my cousin, and my mom were watching a movie. And I didn't even make it through the first part. 
Dale, what do you think that the tie-in was that connected you to Lindsay in the first place? What do you think that people were thinking that made you a good person of interest? Okay, so I was working two jobs at the time. I was working for the for a caregiving facility called um, Beehive Retirement Center. And I was working at a, uh, a summer camp as a sous chef um, for a camp called uh, Camp Solomon Schechter. I would work one job, and then I would get off that job and drive straight up to Tumwater and go work there. Right? And my schedules yeah. were always so jam-packed, and you know, it's, it's kind of hard to remember when, what day you worked and what day you didn't, and, and you know, what, what place you were at. But um, I had that day off two months, not even that. I never heard a single thing from them until all of a sudden I get this phone call asking me um, if I worked that day and what job I worked at and so on and so forth. Well, it's been like a month, almost a month and a half. I, I can't remember. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I told, told the guy, I said, um, I, think, uh, I think I worked at camp, but I know I didn't work downtown. Um, you know, I can't remember. Well, that's because I was supposed to work at camp, but my boss told me that I didn't have to work that day. Totally spaced about it. So they used that against me and tried to claim that I tried lying to them about me working. And that was part of their reason for getting a search warrant for my house. I don't know why they tried to connect in that. Or say I lied because even my neighbor told him, no, he was here all day. Yeah. And and, and that's that's a non-family member. I'm related to, let's see, one, two, three, four houses on that road. Okay. And, and every single house said that, yeah, we seen him that day, he was here, but they didn't take that into consideration because it's family. And how did you find out that you were a person of interest? Uh, how did they approach you with a search warrant? So uh, I'm sleeping, and I get this I get this knock on the door, and I can hear it because my my uh, my dogs are going crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I wake up and I look out the out my bedroom window, and I go, "Holy shit!" There is. Oh man, there was probably like twenty cop cars in my driveway, right? And I'm looking, and I look down the road and stuff, and they're lined down the road. I go, "Holy fuck!" And I, I scream, scream and bang on my mom and dad's door as I'm walking down the stairs. I go, "Mom, dad, time to get up. Fucking cops are here." And they're like, "What?" And so I get down there, I open up the door, and uh, it's a uh, uh, Sergeant Keith Peterson, right? And he's like, hey, we, we, we got a warrant for your house. I go, warrant for what? For Lindsay. I go, they're like, well, we got a warrant. I go, for what? And then they repeated again, Lindsay. And I go, my mom is behind me. She's like, just just let them go. I was like, all right, whatever. So I run upstairs, you know, so I can throw some clothes on because I'm literally downstairs in my boxers. And as I'm running upstairs, I have a cop following me. I mean, he's chasing me, right? 
I get into my room and he pulls his he pulls his sidearm and I'm looking down the barrel of his gun now. And I was like, whoa, 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 dude! I'm just trying to put on some clothes, right? And he's like, well, go ahead. Still with the gun drawn, right? So here I am, putting on my clothes with a gun to my face, and <laughs> getting dressed. And uh, I get back downstairs, and they're like, well. Would you like to go down uh, downtown and answer a few questions for us? I was like, sure. All right. So you get in the car, they drag me downstairs, and they, uh, they asked me um, you know, where I was and what I did and so on and so forth and, and why I lied. And I was like, well, I said, check it out. It had already been like a month and a half um, since her disappearance. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of shit has happened since then. And they're like, hey, would you like to take a uh, polygraph test? I was like, yeah, sure. Right? Well, my nerves are going through the roof, right? So my nose is like, my nose is running. I, you know, I got allergies during the summer. So I'm strapped to this lie detector test, and they start answering, or the guy starts asking me all these questions, right? Mm-hmm. And then I'd go, I'd go like this. <laughs> Anytime I did that, we had to restart the entire thing over. Why? Because I just threw off the, the polygraph test, apparently. Here we are, starting it over and over and over. And then finally, he gives it to me the last time, nine times. All right, this is the ninth time. And I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I don't even care if, if, if my saw runs all the way down my face. I said, I'm, I'm done doing this, you know? <laughs> Telling myself, I'm done doing this. And so we get done with that, and he's like, oh, this is the most accurate one. And I look at the guy, I go, yeah, accurate for who, you or me? He doesn't say anything. And so it's just reading off the, uh, off the three questions that I messed up on. Two of them were drug questions. One was, have you ever sold drugs? And the other one was, um, uh, I can't remember the other one and then one of them was uh, uh, about Lindsay. And I go, well, I understand the two drug questions, but I don't understand the one about Lindsay. And the guy uh, throws his notebook down, gets up to me face-to-face to where, I mean, basically our noses are touching, and looks at me straight in the eye and goes, I know you did it. What did you do with it? I mean, he, he's screaming in my face. And I look at him and I go, you know what, dude? So check it out here. I came down here willingly. I can leave willingly. We're done. I'm going to grab for the door and open it. And he kicks the door shut, pushes me back in the room. And I look at him and go, hey, hey, check it out. I don't care if you're federal agent or not. I said, you do that again, we're going to have some problems. As I'm about to leave, he goes, um, excuse me, sir. We got one more thing. Uh, we need your shoes. And I go, what? That would need those. So I left the police station with no shoes. <laughs> I can't go to my house because we can't go to the house for, for a week. Oh, wow. Where did you stay? Oh, we had to stay at my grandpa's house. My aunt drives me all the way to Central Park to my grandpa's house. And, you know, I, I, I'm still like, you know, Overwhelmed, I guess is how I got on the plate. Well, I get done there and I go to my grandpa's house 
right? And so overwhelmed anyways from the whole, whole entire incident. And I walk in, and I walk around the corner, and I see my house on national television. And I just, like, I dropped. <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Wow. There's a there's aerial view of my house on every single news channel, and I go I go I go it's, it's just on this channel, and my mom's like no it's on every single news channel. I was like oh my god, oh wow, like yeah so so intense like I I almost threw up. I mean that it made me sick. I'll bet. But they're not naming names, but they are naming the description of my car, what kind of car it is, the location of the residence. I mean, they're, they're naming everything. What was your car back then? What were you driving? It was a, uh, it was a 1995 Honda Del Sol, uh, and it was white. There's a lot more to that interview, but we figured we'd take a break for a moment to talk about what we've learned so far. What do you think about his reason for not remembering where he was at the time? It's complicated for me because Dale has told me on on numerous occasions that he was aware of the fact that the police were looking at him for this case well before they actually made any kind of contact with him. He knew that they were asking his friends and his co-workers about what he was doing that night. So under those circumstances, I kind of feel like, yeah, I would expect you to know what you were doing that night because wouldn't you go back and check? Because I sure would. Um, what does he say about his car being downtown that evening? Was, was his car downtown that evening? Dale's position is that he was home that night and that he was asleep on the couch. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Dale's mother has taken and passed a polygraph regarding his being home that night. Yeah, and I've talked to Dale's mom before. Uh, I don't think she's the kind of person to lie for Dale. Um, I was actually looking for Dale at one point because we were trying to do this interview, and I ended up talking with her because I couldn't get a hold of him, and it had been a few weeks, and I thought that was kind of strange even for Dale. And so his mom told me that he was in jail on a probation violation and that she was the one that had called the cops on him. And so I, I just don't get that she would lie for him. She actually turned him in. In this next part of the interview, Dale addresses why he was following Melissa around McCleary, so much so that he was warned to stay away by the police. And there was also something about you being out and about in town and following Lindsay's mom, Melissa. What was that about? Okay, so I was working at the the retirement center, and there was this car. And it kept going around the beehive in circles, like around and around. And I'm like, what the fuck? And all of a sudden, here comes the car again. I said, that's it. Boom, jump the fence, get in my car, and I start following it. And then the car starts taking off, like flying away from me. So I get on, I get on the car's ass, and I'm trying to take a picture with my cell phone. But my camera is such garbage that it couldn't even take a self, uh, cell phone picture. And I was like, all right, screw this. So I'm going to text it to myself. So I, 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 I was texting the number to myself. As soon as I got it, I went back to work. 
right? I got there. No sooner do I get there, all of a sudden, the officer punch shows up, starts screaming at me, asking me why I was following this car around, so on and so forth. I said, hey, that car had been circling this place like 10 or 20 times, all right? And he goes, he goes, he goes, if I can't actually do that again, I'm psyched. That guy does not like me. I was like, I was like, so, so what's the problem? And he goes, he goes, that car that you've been followed, that you just followed, um, that was Melissa. You know, Melissa who? Bomb. That's Lindsay's mom. I go, oh, fuck. How am I supposed to know? Welcome back. So before this interview, Dale had told me that people were stealing parts from his Dell soul, and for some reason he thought the person in the car that was circling the beehive was stealing his car parts. And the funny thing is, is that I actually know someone who has a Dell soul, and she tells me that parts are always getting stolen off of her car. Those cars were a limited production. Another thing that didn't look good for Dale was that he was in Ellensburg two weeks after Lindsay's disappearance. He was dating a woman there who later became his wife and who he had his children with. So it wasn't any surprise that Dale was picked up on an unrelated charge after Lindsay's remains were found near Ellensburg. Yeah, you know, my um, true crime degree in criminology tells me that it's pretty normal for law enforcement to pick up a suspect when there's a big break in the case, and obviously finding remains is a big break in the case. And they'll sort of routinely pick somebody up who they've got suspicions about and sort of shake them up to see what comes loose. So, you know, that's probably what they were doing in Dale's case, but pretty much they shook him and nothing came out, right? Yeah, but his case has pretty much changed the direction of Dale's life, as he discusses here. And what is your connection to Ellensburg? Ellensburg, okay. Ellensburg is where my um, girlfriend slash ex-wife was living at the time. Okay. And um, so... I made a trip over there, and uh, <laughs> kind of, kind of, a, so it's kind of funny but embarrassing at the same time. So I make it, uh, I get off of work from camp, and I get in my car and I drive over there, and uh, you know I was using MapQuest directions on on uh, on a printout because back then, you know MapQuest wasn't really a thing on the cell phones. Right. Right. And so I use the printout and I get there and I'm like, I'm like, all right, I, I think I'm here. And she's like, well, where are you? And I was like, I don't know. So I go to the speed bump and I've been having problems with my exhaust for like ever in a day since I bought the damn car. That's why, I, that's why when I was at home the day when she went missing, my car was sitting on jack stands because we were trying to repair the exhaust, because I just got a ticket for a loud exhaust from that same officer um, that came over and, you know, reamed me for even uh, following a car and getting the license plate number. All right. It was done, paid the guy, and drove home. And what, do you remember what the date was that you went over there? Or is that, it was just in between? I don't remember the date. I know it was after for July. Okay. Um, it was definitely in July, though. It was it was after Fourth of July and just before her birthday. Okay. And you ended up marrying that girlfriend, obviously. You said ex slash ex wife. Yep. 
Yeah. I had, uh, had two kids with her. Yep. Okay. Oh, so with that search, um, I'm going to circle back to that. Did they find anything that connected you to Lindsay? No, they didn't find anything. Nothing. They came up with nothing. You know, just like I knew they were going to. Because, I mean, I had nothing to do with it. I mean, right. dude, they, you even took my car and gave it back to me with black fingerprint powder all over it and still came up with nothing. You know? I, I literally, I, I, had to, I had to pick up my car from Montesano with black fingerprint powder all over it. And I was like, whoa, dude, really? You, you couldn't have washed it first or something? No, it's not our job. Here's the keys. I was like, wow. What did your home look like? Did they toss it really good or was it a mess? No, 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 no. It wasn't tossed. It was emptied. Everything oh. inside my house was put on the front lawn and wrapped in tarps. We had to re-put everything back into my house. Wow. Couches, beds, everything. Even though you weren't named publicly, it seemed like people figured out who you were pretty quickly. I mean, I read about you on WebSleuth, and that's how I found you. What was the fallout like for you? Is that scary for you? I mean, there's people that you didn't know, but they actually knew who you were and where you lived. I mean, like, you mean, like, death threats, um, you know, like, even friends I had and stuff. Um, telling me ne never to talk to him again. Um, I mean, anything and everything you possibly think of, that's what I went through. Um, to death threats of people I don't even know from. Um, saying that they're going to, you know, that they're going to take care of me with a double-edged sword, pulling pull pull uh, verses out of a Bible, you know? And I'm like, wow. About a year ago, you were locked up in jail. And you had an experience while you were in there. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, 2019. Um, it was September of 2019. I got uh, I got attacked by uh, three three uh, uh, inmates in Grays Harbor County Jail, and uh, I didn't even see it coming. I was talking to a guy on on uh, on his bed. And I kind of seen all the peripherals. Um, dude walked by and then walked back by, but he, he ran inside the uh, ran inside the cell and just started firing off on me. You know, like firing off is like final punches. So start firing off on me, and I was like, "What the what the fuck, right?" And two other dudes come inside. And I was like, "Oh, great, here we go." And so I just dived in the bunk and covered the best I could as they literally um, beat the crap out of me. And by the time they were done beating the crap out of me, um, the first one that came in the first time um, looks at me and goes, he goes, that's for Lindsay. And so I'm hitting the button, I'm hitting the button, hitting the button, and the emergency call button doesn't work, it's broke. And I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding me right now? And uh, so I had, to wait, I had to wait for the next guard pass 45 minutes later. I already got my shit ready and stuff. I said, brother, get me the fuck out of here. So he opens up the gate, 
I walk out, throw all my stuff out there, and uh, runs me down to the hospital. And the doctor takes X-rays and uh, looks at me and he goes, "He goes, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to have surgery." And I was like, "Yeah, I can't forget that." My entire eye socket and cheekbone were completely shattered and dropped down, probably about uh, an inch and a half from where it should be. Um, I had I had bones that were jabbing me in my eye and stuff, and I couldn't do I couldn't do anything. The doctors couldn't do anything um, until the swelling went down. They couldn't do any surgery until the swelling was down. So I had to stay like that for a good month before they could actually come in and do surgery. I remember you sending me the photos right after it had happened, and they were pretty horrific. Did you know these guys? No, I've never met them before in my life. A few years after... You were picked up and brought down there and had a search warrant performed on your vehicle and the house and properties. There was another person of interest that became public. What did you think about that situation? Do you think he got it as bad as you did? Um, I, I, you know, I kind of don't, I mean, I have feelings about it, but I don't have feelings about it. You know, because what he went through is not even complete. It doesn't even come close to what I went through. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, his 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 kind of hit the news, so on and so forth. Like, yeah, his name got ran through the mud. But, you know, yeah. yeah. And, the, and, the, and the cops aren't harassing him like they do me. I mean, seriously. It's gotten to the point where I seriously cannot walk downtown McClary or I will be stopped and arrested. And if they can't find something on me, they'll make something up to arrest me. Am I mad at the people that attacked me? Absolutely not. You know why? Because if the, if the tables were turned, I probably would have done the same thing. And I, I don't, I don't blame them not one bit. Because you know, if if we were to ever find the guy that did it, I'd be right there in the line. I'd be, I'd be first one in the line. <clears throat> You know, just because, dude, you ruined my life. You ruined my name. I can't even walk downtown because of you. So, Dale, is there anything else you'd like to tell the world? Look uh, look elsewhere, you know? I mean, you guys need to start looking outside of the box and, and, and stop focusing on one person. Because apparently you've focused on this one person for so long and you've still gotten nowhere. Well, that story about the beating is intense. Dale, we'd like to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. We have more audio from the interview that we'll be playing during our episode on another suspect, and we'll probably release the rest as a Patreon down the line. If listeners have any further questions for Dale or regarding his interview, please feel free to reach out either on our Truth in the Shadow Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter feeds, or you can go to www.truthintheshadow.com. Tracy, what do you think about Dale as a suspect, now that you've heard from him? Once I spoke to Dale in person, my suspicions pretty much melted away. For one thing, it's quite clear in speaking to him that he is much more impulsive than he's not. I mean, like, following Melissa that night was a very impulsive action. And I feel that if he had had anything to do with this, he it would not have been pulled off quite as smoothly. It would have been a much messier situation. 
This person seems a little bit more careful, at least in my opinion. Beyond that, and more importantly than my opinions on Dale, or whether he's impulsive or isn't impulsive, is that um, they went through that car with a fine tooth comb and they found nothing. And if he had transported uh, Lindsay in that car, they'd have found something. And do you want to quickly address the whole um, business about Dale having texted someone that he was going to, you know, chop Lindsay up and dispose her in crab pots or whatever that story was? Last week, we mentioned that one of the reasons law enforcement suspected Dale was because he apparently texted someone that Lindsay was probably dead already, chopped up and disposed of in crab pots. Which, you know, doesn't look great. No. And to make matters worse, a child's skull was actually found in a crab pot in 2014 off the coast, and everyone immediately assumed that it was Lindsay's. But it turned out the skull in question dated back to pre-carbon dating times. Dale explained to me that the text about Lindsay being chopped up was an off-the-cuff thing he wrote, basically saying that the cops were so clueless that Lindsay could be killed, chopped up, and disposed of in crab pots before the cops got a clue. And, you know, while that isn't a great thing to say, I don't think it makes Dale look culpable in any way. Additionally, Lindsay wasn't found anywhere near crab pots. I think it's a very Northwest thing to say, honestly. When you live in an area where the main industry is fishing and timber, the assumption of a missing person who's been gone for too long to be a runaway is that they either ended up at the bottom of an ocean or hidden in the woods. At the end of the interview with Dale, you hear Dale talking about another suspect who, Dale feels, wasn't treated as badly as he was. That suspect, who we'll refer to as the volunteer. We're calling him the volunteer because this man was a volunteer firefighter in Grays Harbor and in Mason County, and was publicly named by law enforcement. He is one of only two people that law enforcement have publicly named as a suspect, so we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't take a closer look at this guy. And we are open to hearing from you directly, volunteer. Even if you don't want to do an interview for broadcast, you could at least present your side of the case and we could summarize it for listeners. Obviously, just because you're a suspect doesn't make you guilty. Yes, please do reach out. So the volunteer is the person we mentioned when we walked the route last week. This is the guy who had a store on the corner of 4th and Maple. That's right on the route that Lindsay was walking that night, and just beyond where she was witnessed by the woman driving to work. And as we mentioned last week, we've been told that the store had a locked vault in the back, and also that the house that was attached to the store had no one living in it. I actually didn't know that. Anyway, Lindsay went to the volunteer store a lot. After she went missing, it came out that Lindsay had been saving up to buy her mother something in the store, so she dropped by regularly to check it out. And a friend of Lindsay's said that she and Lindsay were given free mood rings by the volunteer during one of their trips to the store. So it's safe to say that Lindsay knew him and might have even dropped by his store that day. Law enforcement spoke to the volunteer initially just because his business was on the direct route that Lindsay disappeared from. He had an alibi. He claimed he was in another town doing a test related to his work as a volunteer. But in October of 2011, video surveillance surfaced and it appeared he allegedly lied to law enforcement about his whereabouts on the night Lindsay went missing. He was not only in McCleary at the time, but very close to the area the 10-year-old disappeared from. Yeah, that footage was from a gas station one block south of Maple on Simpson, which is not the infamous Shell station where Lindsay left her bike. 
And you can check out the footage of this suspect on our website, www.truthintheshadow.com. And basically, you can quite clearly see the volunteer there at the time that he was supposedly in another town. And that discrepancy between where he said he was and where he actually was, was sufficient for law enforcement to get a search warrant for his properties and vehicles. You know, there's a lot of strange things about this suspect. For instance, on the night Lindsay went missing, her mother, Melissa Baum, had been searching behind the Simpson door factory where the kids were known to play. And on her way back towards her house, she found the volunteer parked in the bushes nearby. When she asked what he was doing, he said he heard the call about Lindsay over the two-way radio that he's seen carrying in that surveillance footage. And knowing that the kids often played in the woods near her house, he was checking them out. He told her that he'd heard the call and he'd parked the ambulance he was driving that night and drove his own car to look for Lindsay. Melissa estimates this was around 11.30 p.m. He was wearing his Elma Fire Department windbreaker. They drove around in the volunteer's white Subaru. Unbelievable. Another white car. Yes, another white car. So the volunteer drove Melissa around for a while in his Subaru looking for Lindsay before dropping her off at home. And some people kind of see this behavior as, you know, him inserting himself into the investigation. Um, Another thing that I'd heard, and I'd like confirmation of this if anyone knows, was that his wife and family were away that weekend. And that means that he would have had multiple locations he could have taken Lindsay to. You know, and he was a volunteer firefighter. He's seen wearing his official shirt in the footage. It could signify that he was a trusted adult to a child. I wonder if law enforcement pulled the records on that two-way radio that volunteer has on his hand in that footage, because each volunteer has one that kind of works like a cell phone with its own personal identification number. And apparently there's a log for all the activity on that radio. So it might be interesting to see what would come up. Like they might actually be able to place him quite well just using those logs. The volunteer's 2003 white Subaru was searched as well as his business on 4th Street and his home just outside of McCleary proper. Based on the search reports dated October 18th, 2011, they didn't find much in the Subaru that you wouldn't find in most suburban dad cars. The only thing they found dated to around the time that Lindsay went missing was a safe light glass receipt dated July 16th, 2009 in the glove box. The stuff they found in the business was more interesting. In addition to live rounds of ammo, they found notes about the missing child. We don't know what was in those notes, do we? No. Because the thing is, once he knew that he was in the crosshairs of law enforcement, he may very well have been taking notes to figure out where he was. And that is actually another question that I have. Do we know when he first told cops that he was out of town? Was it immediately after she went missing? Do we know that? You know, it's not very clear, to be honest. Um, It sounds like everybody was interviewed in the neighborhood that was on the route, but I don't know that they were asking for alibis at that point you know yeah that's kind of what i thought because if i was asked you know two days after a child went missing where i was i could tell you where i was but if you ask me two years after the fact which is when these search warrants were executed i got no clue right i'm going to base it on what i can see in the calendar yeah no i agree with you um i don't know where i was two years ago but i could probably go to my planner and i could 
pull up the date and then kind of do a guess based on, you know, whatever I'd written down. But yeah, two years after the, oh, that's tough. The other thing they found that seemed kind of ominous was a duffel bag with what looked like human hair. Since we haven't heard anything more about that, we can assume it wasn't related to the case. But it's worth reminding everyone that the volunteer had to buzz people into his store. So if Lindsay went by that night, once she was inside the store, she'd be trapped. The thing about the volunteer and the reason why we bring him up is that, in my opinion, it's kind of hard to clear him. And I actually think it's easier to clear Dale than it is this guy. And yet he could just be very unlucky with, you know, really bad circumstantial evidence pointing against him. Like Dale. So once again, volunteer, if you're listening and would like to give us your side of the story, please feel free to reach out to us either on Facebook or on our website at www.truthintheshadow.com. As we discussed last week and earlier in this episode, there was a violent rape in McCleary in 2003. The victim was a 17-year-old cheerleader at the time, and although authorities took the case very seriously, no suspect had been apprehended by the time Lindsay went missing. I'm assuming that authorities were well aware of this rape at the time that Lindsay went missing, and they would have been looking for this kind of thing anyway. When you're dealing with the uh, kidnapping and likely murder of a child, you're going to be wanting to look around that you know environment and see, are there signs of somebody out there doing escalating kinds of sexual behavior, anything from being a peeping Tom to something like rape. Because criminals rarely start off just murdering somebody, they start off with more minor offenses. I would think so, and Grace Harbor Law Enforcement felt there was a strong likelihood that this case might connect to that of Lindsay's, and they did something quite unusual. They brought charges against the DNA profile of the rapist in 2011. In doing this, they prevented the statute of limitation from expiring. Which is so fucking cool. Not that there should be statutes of limitation in the first place. In December 2020, the profile was sent to a genealogy lab. Genealogical investigations have become a big thing since Paul Holes and his team tracked down the Golden State Killer using that same technology. Basically, what they do is they take a suspect's DNA profile and they find relatives of that profile using public DNA bases like Ancestry. They then narrow the list down until they have their suspect. And folks like Paul Hull strongly recommend that people submit their DNA profiles to places like Ancestry so that they can be used by law enforcement in exactly these kinds of cases. Mind you, if your DNA is used to locate a suspect, you probably aren't going to be hella popular with that side of the family. But I digress. In this case, the lab came back with a short list of people who might be related to the rapist, which ultimately led to a suspect, a former McCleary local, Paul Beaker. Remember how I said earlier that there were only two people who were officially named by authorities in this case? Well, the volunteer was one and Beaker is the other. This is very exciting. So Paul Beaker was arrested by Grace Harbor Sheriff's Department on June 15, 2021. And at the time, the Sheriff's Office also stated that Beaker is a suspect in Lindsay Baum's kidnapping. We have a ton of research that we've done on this suspect, and we'll be sharing it with you as the podcast continues. But to start with, my friend Dee Woods from V Twin Life Podcast has agreed to read the warrant 
for that 2003 sexual assault. And here is that warrant now. What's up all you true crime enthusiasts? My name is D. Woods. I'm a former corrections officer, spent many years in corrections, well roughly about a decade, and I was asked if I would help contribute to this podcast in some way or form. So they asked me if I'd read the warrant. I said, hey, gladly, I'd you know, love to help out. You know, as a guy that does a fellow podcasting and whatnot, this is a great community. So, hey, I'd love to be a part of it and help out where I can. So, let's dive into this warrant declaration. On March 6, 2003, A.E. was 17 years old and lived at a residence in McCleary. When A.E. got off work, she drove home, parked her car in the garage. The garage is detached from the house and has a room for two vehicles. As A.E. left the garage from the door located on the north side, she proceeded to walk to the east side door of the house. After leaving the garage, she was grabbed by an adult who physically pushed her and forced her back into the garage. The suspect then forced A.E. down on the paved floor where he kicked and punched her. The suspect taped her head and hands and he used wire ties on her feet. He tried to put A.E. in the trunk of the car, but the trunk lid wouldn't shut completely, so the suspect forced A.E. into the back seat of her car. According to A.E., she was not sure as to whether she was in the front of the car or the back, but she began kicking around attempting to find them. A.E. stated she didn't realize she was in the back seat until she kicked the suspect, and the suspect told her that if she did it again, he would stop and shoot her. The defendant, after some difficulty, was able to get the garage door open and drove away from the residence. A.E. believed that they went over some railroad tracks that headed out of town, as her radar detector goes off downtown area. A.E. stated that they went down a road, she was able to sit up, but the suspect told her to lay back down and attempted to push her back down into the seat. A.E. tried to get the suspect to take the tape off of her mouth by telling him she couldn't breathe. A.E. held her breath at one point and the defendant stopped the car, poked her in the eyes and slapped her until she acted like she was breathing again. The suspect told A.E. that if she didn't start breathing, he would just continue slapping her. A.E. stated they went down a gravel road for some distance and came to a stop. The suspect removed her from the car, but she couldn't move her feet as they were tied too tightly together and she fell down. When A.E. fell down to the ground, she screamed, and the defendant immediately picked her back up and put her in the car. Putting her head down towards the floorboard on the passenger side and tying her feet up with a seatbelt on the right rear driver's side, she said the suspect then put more duct tape on her legs. A.E. stated that the suspect started to take her pants down, but had to remove the duct tape from her legs to pull them down far enough. A.E. stated the suspect kissed and licked her right leg and pulled her legs apart. Alright guys, I know we said we're going to share the whole warrant, but this section of the warrant being read, it's so graphic that I feel like out of respect for the victim, we're going to go ahead and cut this small portion. A.E. believed that the suspect had a goatee because it was scratchy to her skin. Eventually, the suspect put A.E. back in the vehicle and drove her to the fire hall on Elma Hickman Road. The suspect left A.E. in the vehicle and warned her that if she called the police or if she told anyone within 24 hours that her dad would be dead and the house would be burned down. 
and the rest of her life would be miserable. Prior to leaving, the suspect cut the ties off A.E.'s wrists, and after he left, she was able to free herself enough to drive home. However, A.E.'s father had to cut the ties from her feet when she arrived at the residence. A.E.'s father confirmed, and when A.E. pulled in the driveway, she had honked her horn, and when he came to the door, she yelled for him to come over and hurry. When the father arrived at the car, he found A.E. had duct tape on her, and she had nylon wire ties around her ankles, holding her feet together. The father got a pair of scissors from the house and cut the tie. He brought A.E. into the house. A.E. was upset and running around the house, locking the doors, shutting the window shades, and she kept yelling, he is watching. A.E. told her father what had happened and explained the threats that the suspect had made if they were to call the police. Law enforcement was contacted and A.E. underwent a sexual assault exam and vaginal swabs were taken. The Washington State Crime Patrol Lab examined these swabs and found semen on them. The male DNA profile was obtained from the semen and is kept under Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory number 303-000-607. This profile has been compared to known DNA databanks, however, no match has been found. At this time, the identity of the suspect remains unknown. So after reading this warrant, do you think this was a planned attack? I kind of feel that, I don't know, planned, but I think that he gave it some thought. I mean, just, you're throwing somebody into the backseat of the car and instantly goes for the seat belts to, you know, tie her legs up. It just makes, in my personal opinion, that he gave it some thought, whether premeditated, planned out, that... You know, I don't, I don't want to say I don't think it was his first time, but either it wasn't his first time or he gave it some thought as to how to control his victim. And why do you think he used her vehicle? Uh, readily available and that it was in the garage and I think it less attention to him. Obviously, like I said, he parked at the, brought her back to the fire hall, so whether his vehicle was somewhere in the vicinity of it at that time, if he's going through town, say if they want to look at, you know, security cameras or something from a vehicle trying to catch some glimpse, it's not his car, it's her car they're driving. So still less attention to him and it's gonna kind of draw a blank. That's a good point. I was gonna ask you about the uh, way she was found, but I think you kind of covered it. Cause that was a, that was a strange part to all of this. I thought using the seat belts, because I wouldn't have ever thought about that, but it, it stuck out to you as something that. It did, it stuck out to me whether, like I was saying, whether premeditated or prior experience. I don't know if it, that's quite the right word, but it just doesn't sit easy. And just kind of, in my mind, it makes me think that it's not his first rodeo. I'd like to thank Dee Woods for doing this again because I really didn't want to. Yes, thanks so much. We're so grateful that you took on that horrible task. One of the reasons we read the warrant was because we want to get the perpetrator's modus operandi out there. Yeah, our work to date and also moving forward, we're definitely going to start looking for other rapes that may form a pattern with this one. Yeah, and while my degree in criminology from Dick Wolf University tells me that perpetrators do mix up their MOs, 
Um, there is reason to believe that this rape was not this uh, suspect's first rape and quite likely not his last. Um, and we'll be discussing that a little bit further, why we think that. But for now, we'd like to ask listeners, have you heard of a similar kind of MO? And we also think that the perp may have been targeting coffee stands and the girls who work there because this victim worked at a coffee stand and there seems to be signs that he had been stalking her for a while. And we're going to leave it right there for today in terms of Paul Beaker. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of research on this suspect and we'd like to share it with you in one dedicated episode. And we'll also be looking into disappearances and murders that resemble Lindsay's in the area. Whether or not Beaker is our perp, that's something we need to establish. I can't speak for listeners, but I am hella excited that we finally got into this guy. But that's for another episode. In the meantime, we want to introduce a new segment. Shit we want to know. The purpose of this segment, which we'll run every episode, is to share a tidbit of our investigation that we think is interesting, but that we don't know what to do with. Yeah, because there's so many random pieces of information that may be connected to Lindsay or may have absolutely nothing to do with the case. And on today's Shit We Want to Know, we bring you footage of a vehicle seen at the Shell station where Lindsay went missing. Authorities released the footage which shows two men and a child arriving in a white Honda Ridgeline, one more white car, and one man goes into the store and a child heads in with him and goes to the toilet in the back of the store. This would have happened just about the time that Lindsay went missing. Although authorities released the video and asked whether anyone knew who the man was, no one has ever come forward. I've always felt this was a bit of a nothing burger because the guy who goes into the shell, he looks just like a fisherman to me. He's got like, looks to be some kind of deep, deep sea fishing thing on his shirt. And you know, it's quite possible that he would have been going through McCleary on his way down to the water. I also don't know about bringing his kid along. Although, you know, Gary Ridgway brought his kid along, so what do I know? So I actually went down a real rabbit hole with this vehicle, and here's what I learned. These Honda Ridgelines are famously used as a people trafficking truck. This is what they look for in the borders. There's a human-sized compartment. It's built into the body of the truck. Um, So that human-sized compartment is towards the back of the truck. And what caught my eye is that this Honda Ridgeline had a couple of dog crates that were on the back of the truck and it was reorganized from the image from one image to the next. Yeah, that's true. And not for nothing, but she left the bicycle right behind that garage. And as we discovered when we did our walk and talk last week, there are no cameras back there. So if somebody wanted to grab her behind that shell station, there'd be no footage of it. So the question we're putting out to our listeners is, do you recognize this ridgeline or the owners of it? Do you have anything else you can share about this vehicle and its occupants? Yeah, I mean, I just like to put this siding to bed one way or the other. Please reach out to us regarding today's shit we want to know on our website, www.truthintheshadow.com. And keep tuning in to find out more about the case. We're still in the heat of investigating Paul Beaker and plan to dedicate a full episode to just that suspect. We're also going to be following along with the Paul Beaker case. That trial starts in January. And you will hear all about it here. I mean, would you say it's fair to say that he's the best suspect so far? Well, 
In that he's charged with a pretty violent crime that's along the same lines as Lindsay and none of our other suspects are, I've got to say, he's a strong suspect. I absolutely agree. I think that based on the victim that he chose and based on his MO of choosing a victim, potentially that is a single parent household, um, I think he knew what he was looking for. The gal that Paul assaulted, she was a pretty small girl. And I mean, Paul's really not all that big. I mean, he's what, 5'8 or so? And so he's he's looking for a victim that he can control. And I think in terms of victimology, these two victims were very similar. They're similar size. They look similar. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that he is by far our number one suspect. If you want to know more about this case, you can find us at our website at truthintheshadow.com or follow along on our social media, Instagram at Truth in the Shadow, and our Facebook group page at Truth in the Shadow Podcast.